Orale, bienvenidos, and welcome to a special edition of the Familia FFB podcast. Uh, got a special guest today, uh, an invitado de lujo. Uh, this man and I go way back to the late 1980s. He looks a lot younger than I do, so uh, <laughs> we're good there. But uh, I had plenty of hair back then, and uh, he has all of his. So, But the years have uh, been kind to both of us in, in many other ways. Uh, we were cutting our teeth as young sports writers back then, him at the LA Times, me at the Daily News. Uh, he's on. He's gone on to become one of the leading voices in pro football as the NFL columnist for the LA Times for more than two decades. Um, hey, I told you we got we we got great guests on here. Uh, I credit him partly with bringing us not just one but two NFL teams back to Los Angeles. And uh, a couple years ago, he got the great honor by the Pro Football Hall of Fame with the esteemed McCann Award. Uh, he's a Hall of Famer. Gotta love it. Uh, I'm happy and proud to introduce Sam Farmer. Sam, uh, thanks for joining oh, us, my thank friend. Thank you so much for that introduction. You said I looked young, and I thought it's probably not a good idea to start this thing with a lie. <laughs> 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 we did go back. I mean, we were we were just kids, uh, you know, back in those those days in the late 1980s, and sort of trying to figure it all out, and and. Uh, but we were friends and, and we helped each other in, in an extremely competitive environment. And those are the people that you, that you remember and you cherish as, as lifelong friends because you, you realize uh, <clears throat> to those people, uh, yourself included, relationships matter more than, than the immediate, not that we weren't competitive and we certainly were. Of course. Uh, and who could get, the story or whatever, but uh, but not at the expense of friendship. So I, I appreciate that. Yeah. And those those days, uh, I was you know what? Let's let let's just jump into those days. Those days were so uh, we had to do everything. Mm -hmm. uh, we had to keep our own stats. We kept each other up, and and but that was the thing that I I, I you know there were, there were some people, and you mentioned the competitive part. There were some people you were competitive with that you didn't really like. I always liked you because you were just, you were just a normal dude and uh, like to have fun. Sometimes we played basketball together back in those days is that, you know, the, the people would get together and it was just, uh, but it was such a great training ground. And it really, it really was. I mean, you think about, and we've talked about this uh, lots before, but it was a good training ground to sort of figure out about yourself and understand your capabilities and your, we were very early on the learning curve and early on the growth curve, but you realize uh, the intense deadline pressure that you're under, uh, you find out how do I react under pressure and how can I improve under pressure, right? You know, there are many a times in my career where I've just drawn a blank. I don't know what I'm going to write. And, and um, you know, I, that, that still happens to me. But my periods of writer's block have shrunk down now into, you know, two or three minutes, I might feel that, whereas it was two or three days before. And but anyway, yes, they, they do test you because not only were we keeping our own stats and sitting, uh, you know, getting our computers locked in the snack bar or something, <laughs> we, we had to figure so out true. where's the phone we're going to send on. We were uh, using 
trash 80s, which was a TRS, the Tandy Radio Shack, flat laptops that showed you three, three sentences of text um, and couplers. So we were praying that we didn't get that, that we could send our story into the, I always thought that the LA Times, if it didn't have my story, I see, I didn't understand the operation of a newspaper. And so I always felt like if they don't have my story, they aren't going to land on a million doorsteps tomorrow morning. It's all hinging on my story. <laughs> I had, I had no idea that my high school story was so important. Uh, <laughs> I, but I, it takes me back. I, I got to tell you, my first story, my first story uh, was at the Valley Edition of the Times. And I had, I had submitted a sample um, through a friend, Gary Klein, co current coworker and good longtime friend, uh, said I, I was a big Washington Redskins fan. So I wrote a story about the Redskins Cowboys game. I don't remember who they played. And they're like, well, you know, uh, yeah, we can work with this. It, I'm sure that my story was not any, it was terrible. I, in fact, I'd love to look at it now because it was probably <laughs> so pathetic. But they probably thought they could work with it because I was a friend of Gary's and I could, I could write a sentence or two, maybe. I was a college kid. Anyway. So they, they assigned me to the North Hollywood girls basketball game. And it was at three o'clock because they knew if they sent me to an early game, then I wouldn't miss deadline, you know, say the thing had to be in by, you know, they might want it by eight o'clock or something. So I'm a, I'm a junior at Occidental college. I put on a suit as if I needed to wear a suit. I pull, I put on a suit. I go to this basketball game, girls basketball game. I'm the weirdo in the suit. <laughs> and I've being a college student, naturally, I fall asleep at the game. So I fell asleep in the second half. <laughs> I didn't. I was I woke up to the final buzzer. That's what woke me up. I was in this blur. I went down, I wrote down the scores out of the scorer's book the individual scores, which later didn't add up to the final score. So I knew I got those wrong. And then I, you know, scribbled out some quotes, asked some nonsensical questions to maybe one of the girls and the coach, got in my car and drove to the Valley Edition. Well, I left the oil cap off my car so it kept stalling at every stop sign. So I, I got out in my suit, threw up the hood. Now I'm in a panic because I'm on deadline. You know, I've got to write five inches and I'm on deadline. <laughs> and for people who don't know, five inches is nothing. That's like, it's like 150 I, words. <laughs> yeah. I could, like today, I could probably literally hold my breath and write five inches before exhaling. But to me, five inches is... is giant task. Um, and so I was throwing my hood up. I got oil all over my suit. So I come in, I'm disheveled. I've got oil on a suit, which probably was that and my wedding day were the last times so I wore a suit. <laughs> this is my suit right now. Uh, and 
I know I'm stretching this out. I sat in front of a blank computer screen for about four hours. And I think my story, I had no idea of the inverted pyramid or how to write stories or put the final score first. So I think my story was like four paragraphs that started with in the first quarter, in the second quarter, in the third quarter, <laughs> in the fourth quarter. The next day, uh, I pick up the paper. Of course, I noticed my byline. I've got a byline, but everything else was foreign beneath it because they had to completely rewrite the thing. It looked nothing like what I submitted. <laughs> And they basically said, don't call us, we'll call you. And at that point, I was hooked. You know, the challenge was out there now. Like, wait a second, they're rejecting me after one five-inch story. I'm going to figure out how to do this. And and that really sort of book for me. Um, because if you indulge me here, I was an industrial engineering intern the year before at times Mirror Press, which didn't print newspapers, but they printed the uh, uh, phone books, yellow pages, and something called the OAG, the official airline guide. And it just had basically every flight, this is pre-internet, that every flight was a huge guide. Anyway, I was, I was in charge as an intern of coming up with a waste management pro Anyway, it was so boring, so stultifyingly boring. Every day I would draw eight circles and I'd read the sports page like three times cover to cover, but I'd draw eight circles and every 15 minutes I'd get to erase a quarter of the circle. <laughs> and that's how I kept it off the time. It was like being a prisoner and marking that with the hash marks on the, on the prison wall. Um, so to have a job that where I got to go to a sporting event and I, you know, ultimately would get to talk to athletes, um, to me was a dream. And then on top of that, it being a challenge and something that allowed me to sort of uh, test my creative juices was uh, was a dream. And that's and I still love that to this day. I mean, those are the things that have brought me you know, have, have kept me interested in what I'm doing. And that's the thing. I, th I think, uh, you know, we've both, both been at it for more than 30 years and obviously, you know, accomplished a few, you accomplished a few things here and there. You never feel like you're done. You never feel like you got it mastered. That to me, I think is the great challenge of this. Yeah. In fact, more often than not, I close my laptop thinking I'm getting fired tomorrow. <laughs> that's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> that's horrible. Oh my God. That's a terrible story. But the, you know, that's, I do find that people who are better at their jobs are dissatisfied. They do feel like, Oh, that was terrible. And the people who are not uh, maybe as good at their jobs, I don't want to be self congratulatory about that, but people who maybe aren't, quite they're the ones who are going nailed it <laughs> nailed it again yeah <laughs> it's uh, i think you have to sort of be dissatisfied at, at your work to feel like uh, it's a fear of failure at least for me that that uh, really drives me and thinking uh, I can't, 
you know, I've got to do better than this. And, and that pushes me forward. I got laid off uh, when I first, when I left the times and I had a very low level job at the times and it wasn't full time. So uh, I moved to Seattle and uh, took a job at the Bellevue Journal American. It was full time and it was covering the University of Washington, which University of Washington football was really good at the time. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, they were in, shared the national championship with Miami and uh, they had really good players, lots of draft picks. And it was a it was a great beat in Seattle. And this was a this was a good paper. I got laid off seven months in and was jobless for a matter of hours because I got another job at a at a I don't know if it's a smaller paper. Circulation wise, it wasn't smaller, but it was less prestigious paper. And um, and from that moment on, I thought, you know, I'm so lucky to have a job. I am so lucky. That really was a course correction for me where I felt like, so I understand when people say this failure in my life or this failure in my life were instrumental in getting to me, getting me to where I am. I really can say honestly that uh, now I was laid off, you know, but I viewed it as a failure. I think they probably, if they wanted to, they could have fought harder to keep me. Um, but I needed that. I needed to have to, to follow my face to uh, pick myself up and realize that, uh, you know, I can do this. I can pick myself up. I can rebuild and, um, you know, come back better. So you mentioned the, uh, um, you know, kind of the fear of failure a little bit, uh, the things that, that helped to mold us and the decisions that we made. I'm going to take you back to a night you and I were sitting next to each other, October 15, 1988. Yeah. We had a choice to make that night. <laughs> yes, we did. And we made the wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set it up. You yeah. and I are sitting, at, sitting right next to each other at Occidental College. Yeah. And it's about five o'clock. The game, I think. I know exactly where we were in the press box. I know yep. exactly where we were sitting. And... No TVs. And, nope. you had, and you were in possession of something incredibly valuable. Yes. I had two tickets. I had two tickets to that, to the World Series game between game one, right? Game mm -hmm. one. Yes. Between the Dodgers and A's, um, which will, of course, be forever known as one of the greatest games in the history of sport. And that's Kirk Gibson's home run. I gave those tickets actually to. Bev and Warren Gannon, God rest their soul, who had let me stay in their house and live on the pullout couch in Warren's office in La Cunada. Uh, they were family friends and dear people. Uh, and I wanted to, and I'd gotten the tickets through Chris Baker at the Times, and I wanted to thank them for letting me stay there. They were huge Dodger fans. Now, Bev and Warren were such sweet people, but I would tease them 
relentlessly about I'm going to stay at your house for a long time. You know, I mean, they got a college kids. They were empty nesters. They didn't want a college kid living at their house. So I would get up in the morning and I'd, you know, walk out in my boxer shorts. (laughs) 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 I'd say, Warren, Mr. Gannon, I'd say, this was August, mind you, or or actually it was October. Uh, I'd I'd probably been staying there since August. I mean, that's how long. Uh Uh-huh. I'd say, where are we going to put the Christmas tree? <laughs> you could just tell. <laughs> he was, you know, uh, but he would laugh. And, and uh, of course, I wouldn't be staying all the way to Christmas. Anyway, we're back at the Occidental football game. I don't go to that game. You and I are the two schmucks in Los Angeles who are not paying attention to this World Series <laughs> game. And we can never say that we saw that live or watched it live on TV. Um, we're the, if you, in the order of sort of people with regrets about that, I'd put the guy with the Corvette and the round <laughs> taillights who hit his brakes right as he was leaving the parking lot. When Gibson hit the home run. I'd put him at the top of the list, but we weren't too far from the top. <laughs> We were right next. But what I remember about that game, I just have to say, and I know I'm rambling here. No. um, Is I was, I had my notebook and this is down to the deadline thing. Uh, I had my notebook and I waited till whoever it was got off the payphone so I could call in a dictate. So I'm dictating my story. I didn't have a computer. I was dictating my story to the desk. So there's an editor on the other end who is, uh, for your audience, who is uh, taking down what I'm saying and, and then creating the story on the other end. So I'm flipping through my notebook and I'm saying, uh, in the first quarter, um, Occidental uh, ran for 73 yards. Uh, the, the, wait, there, there was an interception. Hold on a second. There was an interception. And then in the second quarter, and at halftime, hold on a second. And the guy on the other end, Steve Henson. Oh, I know him. Loosely leans back in his chair, loosely cups his hand over the phone and says, Farmer's gagging. Anybody want him? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then I said, uh, you know, so which does not inspire confidence in me because now I'm gagging on deadline. And then he, he gets back on the phone. Clearly nobody wants me. Nobody wants to take my call. No one t- wants to take the dictation. He said, Sam, breathe into a paper bag and call us back and then hangs up. So that's when I realized, you know what? <laughs> He's way more calm than I am. I need to just take a deep breath and just relax. And so that's my, most uh, powerful and and sort of transformative memory of that of that night. And what what what's your memory? The memory that I have was the game, our, the Oxy game, and you know we were both locked in. the The things that I remember is Canseco hit the grand slam, and I thought, oh, it's over. The, the A's are gonna the, the the A's are gonna. And so we, I I remember very loosely listening to the game. 
until it, and then it just so happened that it, the ninth inning was coinciding with our game, our, the Oxy game going to halftime. And, and I remember he, uh, we got to listen to, I don't remember if it was the Jack, the Jack Buck national broadcast, or if it was Don Drysdale, I, I think it might've been Drysdale and we're listening to it. And what I remember is we broke, a, we broke a major rule after Kirk Gibson hit the home run. We cheered and high-fived in, oh, in the press that's box. Great. That's great. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's such a great thing. Now that, that helps me fill out that memory because it's so funny and such a funny thing in life. You have memories of situations and somebody comes up to you and says, oh, remember when this, this, and this happened? Viewing it through their lens and their own memory and you might not have any recollection of that, but that makes total sense. Because we were friends, we enjoyed, I always enjoyed when I'd get to a game and saw that you were at the game because there are writers you didn't like and there are people that you didn't get along with. And uh, so when it was the two of us uh, who I think took our jobs seriously mm -hmm. and worked hard at them, but we're not uh, jerks about it, you know? Uh, <clears throat> anyway, it is interesting when you hear the perspective of somebody else and it sort of colors in that memory that you had. And I can totally see where we were sitting and mm -hmm. everything, but that's interesting, yeah. I can't tell you how many times, I, you know, my during my eight years at the Dodgers, I can't tell you how many times I retold that story and obviously dropped your name every yeah. time. And just, uh -huh. uh, and to this day, that's the only time I ever cheered in the press box. So. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> what well, you know what? I mean, we wouldn't be human if we didn't cheer. We're from L.A. Going from that night to, I mean, you've had you've had such a career. I mean, you've you, you've been blessed to be able to keep the NFL. I mean, to me, I I credit you a lot with keeping the NFL alive uh, in in Los Angeles for those two decades that we didn't that we didn't have uh, any teams here. Um, I actually thought, I, for for you, how uh, how much did you see what? I mean, during that time also, also, and, you know, obviously this is a fantasy football podcast, how much did kind of that and, and, and really just the way the, uh, the NFL really evolved into the national pastime, how, what were, what did you see were the factors that really kept the NFL alive in LA and also just made it, made, and the game in general became a bigger deal? Yeah. Um, it was it was really tough in LA for a long time. Uh, I remember going to Tony Carrenti's classroom, and Tony Carrenti is a longtime NFL referee, and he was also a teacher in North Orange County, like around Placentia or Brea or one of those mm -hmm. places. I don't remember exactly where, but I went to his classroom, and I I wound up traveling with him for a week just with, an, with his officiating crew uh, to a game and just sort of documenting what they do. And I remember talking to his classroom and this was probably, I don't know, uh, 2007, 2008. He had just worked, in fact, yeah, 2008 probably, he just worked the, uh, he officiated the Chicago Indianapolis Super Bowl. And 
I remember talking to his class and I said, how many of you uh, are, but know what Mr. Carenti does on weekends? Now, this teacher had just been the referee in a Super Bowl the, the prior season. I mean, wouldn't every kid know that that's Mr. Carenti on the field in the Super Bowl? And about half the kids raise their hands. So that eliminates half the class, like half the class has no idea about the NFL. Then I said, uh, how many of you are NFL fans? Maybe a quarter, uh, half of those people. Now we're at a quarter of the class. How many of you have a favorite team? Anyway, it went down to like two or three kids in this class had any awareness of the NFL. And the, and the NFL really felt like it was losing a generation in Los Angeles in being gone for what turned out to be 20 years. And so, but the, the TV numbers were good uh, in LA. In fact, the TV numbers for a Monday night game were actually better in Los Angeles than in New York where they have two teams in terms of percentage of people, households watching. Um, and I think the LA fans realized that, A, we don't wanna spend public money on a stadium. And so it's going to have to be an entirely privately financed stadium. And B, all the things that sort of um, happened while a team was gone um, after the Rams and Raiders left in 1995, at the end of the 95 season, 94 season, so early 95, uh, we saw the rise of the internet. Okay, so your ability to follow a team on the internet. We saw the formation of NFL Network. We saw the rapid rise of fantasy football. So you weren't so interested in a particular team as you were in individual players. And we saw the red zone arise. Oh, so nice. really it became uh, consuming football from the couch in LA felt like, you know what, if nobody's going to come and build a stadium, we don't really need a team. I've got my fantasy team. I've got the red zone. I can switch to any game. I don't have to go to a sports bar. Um, I don't have to worry about parking in my driveway. I don't want to have to worry about going to the bathroom at my bathroom <laughs> or waiting in line or paying eight bucks for a beer. So LA really and on top of all that, LA got the best games on TV because we didn't get, you know, Golden Girls and TJ Hooker when a game got blacked out. <laughs> so LA was really in a good position. And, and so the NFL understood this and they understood that, boy, we got, we got more and more rounds of TV contracts coming up. We have the nation's second largest market that doesn't have a team. We've got small markets like Nashville and Charlotte and Jacksonville um, that have new teams, startup franchises. Why can't we get something going in LA? And it was really um, every year at the Super Bowl, the commissioner has his press conference. Now, I, I from Paul Tagliabue to Roger Goodell, um, I deal with the commissioners a lot and, mm -hmm. and had, because my focus as a beat writer, as a, as a national writer was not a given team. 
it was uh, national. And my number one priority was when is LA getting a team? So I really, the individual players and coaches weren't as big a deal to me as dealing with the owners and commissioners because they were the ones that were going to make that decision. And that's the story I couldn't get beat on. And so that enabled me to do all sorts of wild stories because I wasn't having to necessarily cover a game. So in addition to covering games, which I did do that, um, you know, I'd go to John Madden's and watch football with him. Mm -hmm. Or I uh, went and spent a week with Pete Carroll or climbed Mount Rainier with Roger Goodell and Jim Mora or uh, went to Europe with Paul Tagliabue or went to Israel with Robert Kraft or uh, any number of these sort of cool experiences that I only got to do because it's the LA Times, nation's second largest market, LA doesn't have a team, and we want to maintain a presence. So I was really just fortunate, lucky to be in this position and um, have these opportunities. Um, because really it was almost every week I was getting to do something, whether it was going out with a group of quarterbacks, spending a week with a bunch of quarterback dads. So whether that's Archie Manning, Drew Brees' dad, Matt Stafford's dad, Don Hasselbeck, um, or and then that. doing that twice. Did it in New York with, uh, you know, Matt Ryan's dad and Alex Smith's dad, Archie Manning again, Nick Foles' dad. So those cool experiences that are just, you know, once in a lifetime things that I wouldn't have gotten had I been one of 32 beat writers around the country. I remember uh, on another podcast, uh, I heard you tell a story about uh, your trip to Israel with Robert Kraft, and there were several Hall of Famers on there. Um, yeah. I think one of them involved Roger Staubach. Does that? Uh, yeah. So <laughs> there were 18, the 18 Hall of Famers on this trip, and they weren't like low level or unrecognizable Hall of Famers. They were the creme de la creme in this group. I mean, it was. Uh, Jim Brown, Roger Staubach, Joe Montana, Amin Joe Green, uh, you know, Jerome Bettis, Mike Singletary, Chris Carter, Marshall Falk. And it was a, it was a amazing group uh, of guys. And the cool thing was we traveled in two buses and we spent eight days in Israel uh, going all around the Holy Lands. And the really cool thing was it took about 15 minutes for the veneer of the Hall of Fame to drop away. And it's just to be a bunch of guys and their wives and their wives, although my wife wasn't on that trip. Um, and so you just uh, joke around with each other, you poke fun at each other, you laugh at different things, you have inside jokes, all with these these guys who were your football heroes growing up so it was wild I mean it was really surreal to uh you know be poking fun of Eric Dickerson over something you know and having <laughs> but I remember we were um leaving the Hilton in Tel Aviv 
for the northern part of the country and, and we were at a breakneck pace. So uh, uh, we had to get our bags packed and leave the hotel. So Joe Montana get off, got off at a lower floor. It was a packed elevator and not everyone in Israel recognized NFL players, although these guys were huge guys. Uh, but Joe and Roger Staubach are on the same elevator going up. And Joe gets off on the third floor and, and a fan on the elevator is just in, you know, having a conniption. He's like, can you, I can't believe, do you know who that is? That's one of the greatest football players in NFL history. Oh, that's Joe Montana. That's Joe Montana. Well, the doors now are closing. He turns and he's telling this to Roger Starback. And, and Roger, who's got the greatest sense of humor, and he says, uh, he says, really? Where'd he, where'd he play? And the guy says, he, he played for the 49ers. And uh, we're all wearing lanyards with our names on them. And the guy kind of glances down, reads, reads Roger's name and says, hey, I know you. He said, you're that real estate guy. <laughs> he had no idea. I had no idea. And that night I sat next to Roger at dinner and, and he said, you know, that was the best compliment I could have got. <laughs> he knew me for my post-career life, which was enormously successful. Uh, he didn't say that, but I do. I mean, I think he sold his company for like half a billion dollars. Yeah. Um, but he didn't know me. He didn't remember me as a football player, but he was. And that night, I remember there were two long tables and Joe was the star. If there were two stars on that trip that everyone recognized, whether they were football fans or not, they knew who Joe Montana was and they knew who Jerome Bettis was. And I asked Jerome about that. Why do they, you know, with all due respect, how do they know you over Mike Singletary? Or how do they know you over John Stallworth? Or, um, or Jim Brown. <laughs> Jim Brown or Andre <laughs> Reed or Bruce Smith. I mean, how do they know? And he said, the bus, the bus. They know the bus. He said, just having that cartoon character. He said, where little kids know that's a bus. Everybody knows what a bus is. Everybody gets the concept of a bus running over you. Um, and so he said, that's, that's why, that was his theory about why. I mean, we'd walk through a group of people and you'd hear bus, bus. The bus, you know. So anyway, but uh, so Joe was at one table, and he stands up and gives an eloquent toast, and and uh, Roger sitting next to me, and he says, "Tell me something." He said, "Did he beat the Cincinnati Bengals in the Super Bowl?" I said, "Yeah, actually, twice, twice." He goes, "Yeah, he should try the Pittsburgh Steelers on for size." <laughs> yeah, he's got a great sense of humor, <laughs> and that's how that's how it was. I mean, I uh, we were in the Dead Sea, uh, and the Dead Sea is like eight times the salinity of the Pacific. So you, you could float. It's hard to even sink in the Dead Sea. It's almost it has a feel of almost like suntan oil, um, and so I was in the Dead Sea with these Hall of Famers, and I went out, and Jennifer and Joe Montana were beyond these buoys. 
with their two sons, Nate and Nick. And we had been hanging out together. So I swam out to them and we're, we're out there floating in the Dead Sea. And I see that NFL Films, which was on this trip, the cameramen are starting to come out toward us because Joe was really a focal point. They got their pants, they got their cameras rolling and their pants rolled up. And I thought, you know, I'm not getting out of the water on NFL Films uh, around a bunch of Hall of Famers. I'm not doing it. You know, I'm getting out of this shot. So I swam way around out of the arc of the camera and into this dock, toward this dock. Well, the Dead Sea, as I said, the salt level is so high. There are these salt formations on the, on the floor of the Dead Sea. So it's uncomfortable to walk on it. You know, it's, it's actually almost hot. The water is so warm. So I am swimming all the way until I'm like in six inches of water. Oh, wow. So you can imagine the scene of me trying to get up out of the water, like the creature from the Black Lagoon, slap <laughs> myself onto the dock. I'm just a mess. I'm walking up the dock. And I see a, a woman probably in her mid-70s. And she looked like she was an American tourist. And she sort of, she points to me. And I thought, well, she's not pointing to me. And then she made a pantomime like a camera and pointed to me again. And I looked behind me, there was nobody behind me. And I said, are you talking to me? And she said, yes. Can I get your picture? Can I get a picture with you? I said, no, absolutely not. And I was like, yeah, I've been trying to avoid this camera. Now you want your, and she said, well, you're Joe Montana, aren't you? I said, I said lady, oh, terrible impression of a Hall of Fame quarterback. I think she just was, somebody probably pointed out to us in the water and said, Joe Montana's the guy with gray hair. Because the only thing in com I have in common with Joe Montana, we're the same height and we have the same color hair. And so she just figured, oh, okay, Joe Montana is getting out of the water and swimming over toward me. And so for the rest of the trip, when we call roll and they'd say Joe Montana, somebody invariably on the bus would say, he's right there. <laughs> so that so was really, it was funny. And Joe's got a good sense of humor about it. And so we had some good laughs. So, but that was a, that was a very, very special trip. Yeah. Well, you ended up having another special trip uh, a couple years ago. You got to join them uh, in yeah. Canton. I mean, yeah. how amazing. Yeah. Tell me. Yeah. That was incredible. It was incredible. And, and uh, um, I got to, you know, bring my family, my parents, uh, my wife and daughter. My son was overseas at the time. Unfortunately, he couldn't make that. And so that was a little heartbreaking, but um, they gave them the royal treatment when they had drivers and, and they were able to, and it was just such a neat experience. The parade that they uh, got to do all of that uh, experience Canton in a different way. And, and uh, you know, it was a cool and humbling experience. It really was. Uh, but that's a special place 
and there are a lot of special people um, enshrined there. So it was neat. And I just felt like a, a connection with a lot of those players having made the Israel trip with them. Mm -hmm. um, but you realize as, as you did, and as we all do in our career, the people are people. And it's just, some people are good at doing something that we place a high value on or importance on. But, um, you know, I guess I, I, you can't really explain it until you live it and you realize, oh, they worry about the same things we do. <laughs> oh, they have the same kind of insecurities we do and maybe even more. And it doesn't matter if they can, you know, buy this whole car lot that doesn't solve all their problems in life or, or whatever. So do you, uh, have, do you have a favorite memory from that weekend? Um, actually not a favorite memory, but a memory that, that, um, overshadows all my memories of that weekend. Um, uh, that's a really rough one, but, uh, uh, so Don Banks, who I mentioned uh -huh. before, um, Don, uh, was my closest friend on the road, you know, my closest friend on the beat. In fact, our wives called us road wives and, um, uh, he was a great writer for Sports Illustrated and then was part of a wave offs and, and worked for a number of outlets, uh, the athletic, the NFL.com, um, Patriots.com. But he had just gotten a job at the Las Vegas Review Journal to cover the Raiders. And he was covering the Hall of Fame, his very first assignment. Uh, for the Las Vegas paper. And um, we were staying in the same hotel and uh, I'll cut, I don't wanna to get too into this, but uh, we got a call from his wife uh, that morning after the Hall of Fame ceremony. And uh, she said that he was supposed to have arrived home. He didn't, could we check? hotel checked the hotel and Donna died in his room so mm -hmm. it was and it was one floor below us and and uh incredibly uh searingly painful for all involved and certainly his children and his wife and and you know for my wife to have had his wife on the phone when we discovered this because we were sort of acting as, as her eyes and ears right looking for Don and uh, you know, the ambulance pulled into the, no, it was just awful. So that, that, I, that is my overriding memory <laughs> that sort of eclipses all the other great memories from that, that weekend. But I, but I do have great uh, memories of that time and, you know, being backstage at the hall of fame and, and having Bill Belichick back there and chatting with him. And, and my mom walked up to her and said, Hey, I know you <laughs> to, to Bill Belichick. And he was actually very nice to my mom and uh, everybody's nice to everybody in Canton because everybody's <laughs> celebrating and everybody feels good. And they're uh, either celebrating themselves or celebrating for somebody that they love or were a fan of. Um, so it's a happy, by and large, a very, very happy place. So, yeah. um, you know, 
kind of going to this year, how much was this year just the, the most different, almost uh, challenging uh, year for uh, trying to cover the NFL? Yeah, I know it definitely was um, uh, different in that you weren't going to games. I mean, there's no value or very little value to being at a game because um, you can't go down the locker room. You're watching from afar. You can't really watch the TV and see what other people are seeing. And um, not to mention all the sort of, I feel silly saying it because there are much more serious aspects of this, but the general inconveniences of COVID, uh, I'm not saying that that's the, the, the real fallout from COVID. Obviously it's the lives lost and ours is a small price to pay, but it was just easier to stay home. So you had to work the phones and um, uh, I did have the advantage of having a robust phone list that I built over mm-hmm. the last 30 years and trust um, and the ability to call players and talk to coaches and get callbacks from owners or talk to the commissioner or do those things that were all, you know, the 30 years behind me sort of poured the foundation for that. If I had just started on the beat, um, it would be a never ending zoom call, you know, and you had those. And in a weird way, it was, it was, you had much less access because you weren't in locker rooms and, and getting those little tidbits that you do in a locker room, but you had much more access because I could go after a, um, after a, you know, Buccaneers game and get on a zoom call and ask Tom Brady a question from my home or ask anybody a question mm-hmm. um, from a game where I was not in attendance. So it'll be really interesting to see what the league keeps from this experience, what efficiencies were created. I think the draft will keep a lot of those elements. Mm. And that was really the first really impressive thing the NFL did is pull off a draft that was actually better than the regular draft. <laughs> You got to look into people's homes. You got to see them playing with their kids. You got to see those funny unscripted moments, um, which you don't see on a night that's typically very rehearsed. Right. Yeah. So a couple of, a couple of questions. Uh, You've been so generous with your time. This is awesome. Uh, You know, this, the, the, this off season that we're, about to go into the Super Bowl, so I'm going to ask you a question about that. But have you, with all the talk already of the quarterback carousel that could be moving around, Deshaun Watson's asked to be traded, Matthew Stafford. Do you remember uh, a an off season, uh, the precipice of an off season being this almost chaotic at such an important position? And do you have any predictions uh, of where people will land? Yeah. Um, <laughs> It is. We are at a, at a turning point. Uh, I'm sure there have been seasons where I thought it can't get any crazier than this. And um, um, so I would say, you know, I mean, it's weird thinking this last season, thinking about some of the fixtures like Tom Brady and Cam Newton and mm-hmm. Phil Rivers uh, winding up 
guys who were fixtures in sort of um, the face of their franchises uh, winding up in far-flung places that you might not have expected. So, uh, but this is certainly a very active year um, and we're seeing incredible turnover at that position with the new wave of young players. And we're starting to see these players who grew up going to, you know, playing in passing leagues and, uh, you know, throwing 50 times in a game. And it's become so, so much more of a throwing game than it was when we were young, younger. <laughs> but, but, you know, so you see now that guys getting phased out and I look around the, at the NFC South, you know, and they've got Teddy Bridgewater in, in Carolina, like, fine, he'll stay. Um, but you've got Tom Brady in Tampa, you've got Matt Ryan in Atlanta, and you've got Drew Brees in New Orleans. There's either turnover that's already happened there or soon to be turnover within the next couple of years um, in a whole division. I think Sam, Dar Sam Darnold could wind up in a place like Indianapolis or Chicago or someplace like that. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think he's long for New York. I don't think that's any secret. Um, Deshaun Watson would be tremendous. You know, the thoughts are that he goes to the, to the Jets. Um, you know, the Niners are also in the mix here. What are they going to do at quarterback? I think the, the quarterback shuffle and quarterback carousel will be really interesting this offseason. So um, uh, you've been hot with your picks during the postseason. Uh, I think, uh, I think what was it, nine, two, and one? Uh, yeah, uh, I guess a spread. Yeah. I think I was 10, <laughs> 10 and two, uh, um, nine, two, and one against the spread. Yeah, I've been hot, which means I'll be stone cold in the Super Bowl. <laughs> well, at least you'll be better. I'm, I'm sure your record is better in the Super Bowl, picking the Super Bowl winner than Plachke, So uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would say. <laughs> do, you, do you have an early look at uh, – um, yeah, you know, I, I, it is, I was talking about this last night. That's a really uh, interesting, uh, interesting matchup. I don't think the Chiefs match up great against, uh, against the Buccaneers because those receivers, the big receivers of the Buccaneers, I think will create problems. Uh, Brady, if you look at the last five games of the season, of the regular season, arguably his hottest five game, game stretch of his career. Um, and I look at the, you know, the Chris Godwins, the Mike Evans, Gronkowski, Cameron Brait. Um, those are pretty dangerous weapons if they can establish the run. And so that would be Leonard Fournette and Ronald Jones establishing the run. Um, the, the Chiefs obviously are able to come from behind. They keep coming. I think I call them, they're like a zombie team that just relentlessly comes at you. And you forget that guys like Le'Veon Bell are on the team. I mean, there are so many great players, you know, whether it's, you know, a Tyreek Hill or a Mecole Hardman or a Travis Kelsey or uh, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. I mean, they, they have so many weapons, not to mention uh, the great Patrick Mahomes. And 
Uh, I was on a call yesterday with uh, Tony Romo just talking about, about this game. He really feels like this will be one of the greatest games in NFL history. It's one of the wow. greatest matchups and perhaps the greatest matchup in his mind in NFL history because you have a multi-generational superstar in Tom Brady who, who would have thought at 43 years old that he'd be playing football, that he'd still be playing and at the highest level. And you've got the heir apparent or the ascendant king, potentially future greatest player in NFL history in Patrick Mahomes. And so to his thinking, it's like if you were to say Michael Jordan at the end of his career if he was still at the top and that overlapping with LeBron and ascendant LeBron, and it's almost like one of those arguments you'd have sports arguments. What if you had Jack Nicholas and Tiger Woods and both of them are at the top of their game, right. who's going to win? Well, we actually have that playing out in real life in this Super Bowl, And it's so exciting to think that uh, now the, the first time that, uh, Jim Nance and Tony Romo called a Super Bowl was two years ago when the Rams played the Patriots and the Patriots won 13 to three lowest scoring game in Super Bowl history, lowest score by a winner, thir 13 points and lowest score by a loser, three points. There was only one play in that game, one play that was in the red zone, one <laughs> snap in the red zone for either team. So and you, and you were thinking, this is the number one Rams offense. This is going to be a high-scoring game. And so who knows what direction this goes in. But, but uh, you got to figure just the pyrotechnics of this. And, you know, Jim Nance brought up an interesting point, too. He said, there are going to be 20,000 people, 22,000 people in the stands. 7,500 of them are going to be vaccinated healthcare workers as guests of the NFL. The lion's share of those people are going to be from the uh, Tampa slash North Florida slash Florida area. Uh, they're going to be Buccaneers fans. That could be, you know, the Super Bowl is different. It's the championship games are wild. But the Super Bowl, because people get the, the tickets long before the game and long before they knew who's going to be playing in it, isn't filled with hardcore fans of one team or another. Um, and in fact, you can even sense the shift of fans at the Super Bowl, rooting for one team and then turning and rooting for the other. I noticed that when the Patriots played the Giants the first time, Patriots were... 18 and 0 and uh, going for perfection and the Giants were the underdog and as soon as the Giants were coming back and especially when Eli Manning hit that long pass to Tyreek Hill in Arizona you could feel a shift in the crowd and fans were rooting actively against the Patriots in that, that game but they weren't necessarily Giants fans they were just we're going to pull for the best story so Long way of saying this will be an interesting Super Bowl because we might have, because it's the first Super Bowl where a guy's playing it, where a team's playing in its home stadium, we might have a distinctly Tampa Bay crowd 
and uh, 20,000, as we found out in Kansas City, can sound like 70,000. So it might be a loud crowd pulling for the for for the Buccaneers in this game, and that actually might be a factor. I get thinking you've got to look into all those things, and that's what I'm going to do over the course of the week as I'm sort of assembling and discerning who I'm going to pick. But this is right now kind of a toss up. Oh man, well I'm gonna I'm gonna look forward to that. Uh, got time for one fun question and one uh, final one. So the yeah, fun the fun question uh, I, I've I've always I've wanted to ask you this forever. Your cameo appearance on the longest yard. Oh, yeah. How did that happen, <laughs> well, and how much fun was that? Oh, it was so much fun. It was so great. You know, uh, great group of guys uh, in the press box uh, as as reporters. They were all reporters. So I'm trying to think now. Uh, Peter King, Jay Glazer, uh, the late Brian Burwell, uh, Adam Schefter. Uh, uh, John McLean uh, and uh, Larry Weissman, I think, um, from USA Today. Those were the the group of guys in the and you know they uh, we got there and Adam Sandler was there and and Pete Siegel the director and and uh, Pete told me, hey, I want you, I'm going to have you say that like I was got to be front and center. And he, he said, I want you to say this line. And your line is, um, uh, there's the Paul Crew we all love to write about. It's a pretty simple line. Like Paul Crew, the quarterback, Adam Sandler, was through his third interception in four plays or something and, and uh, was throwing the game, or we thought. And so I was like, I was supposed to say, there's the Paul crew we all love to write about. I mean, it was a pr pretty natural line. I got up there. You ever see a cartoon where the, there's the frog that dances and everything and then gets in front of the talent scout and he opens it up and the frog's <laughs> in front of it? Well, I got up there and I'm in this press box on a Sony soundstage and there looked to be 500 people working on this movie and Adam Sandler sitting there and I've got to say something, a line on cue. And I opened my mouth and I just fumbled it all out of my mouth. I don't even know what I said. And I said, I got, I got to do this again. And I thought, I'm never going to criticize any one of these guys for bad acting again, because <laughs> I can't. Um, so I got to say a couple lines in that movie. Um, and it was so much fun. And then for several Super Bowls after that, uh, I would have dinner with Adam Sandler. And uh, uh, then, you know, a couple nights before the game, a uh, group of those guys. So it would be, depending on the year, I mean, sometimes it was Chris Rock a couple of years with Adam Sandler and David Spade. And I got to be the guy nobody knew. <laughs> and um, I remember one uh it was the miami game it was the uh colts versus the saints and um we were at this steakhouse called on south beach prime 101 or prime something and we had the prominent table in the front and it was so prominent that 
uh, and it was it was a table that could have seated 20, but there were like eight of us. And it was Sandler, his cousin, his uncle, Chris Rock, David Spade, Rich Eisen, and Chip Namius and me. And I knew we were at the at the sort of prime table, not just because where we were located, not just because these guys were at the table, but because Jim Brown, who I didn't know well at the time, um, came over to our table to say hello. Um, Alex Rodriguez came over to our table to say hello. Oh I was God. like, this is awesome. This is really cool um, being at this table. And you could see that people were looking, people who weren't at the restaurant, but were crowds outside were looking through the windows and they were mouthing Adam Sandler. I'm, sitting next to this guy and I said uh, and he and he was the just the nicest I mean he's the greatest guy he's asked you way more questions about yourself remembers your kids remembers their names remembers little you know um, wanted to know about his my kids were a little older than his kids and he was wondering about when's his when is this tooth gonna come in what's that process like and all these regular things like i said people are just people are people and uh, at the end of the night he stops me we're about to leave and he says okay there are three cars out there across the street waiting for us and there were three blacked out escalates and he said pick one of the cars run to it don't stop and we walk out of the restaurant and it was a scary swarm of people that formed. I mean, it was like when people saw that it was Adam Sandler and this was Chris Rock and it was just out in public uh, and we just bolted across the street. And I thought, this is actually kind of a freaky, scary <laughs> moment of, of And I was just, as I said, just a, auditing the class, you know, I, I could have I walked through that you know, uh, I, I wouldn't, have, nobody bat an eye, but when it's Sandler, he's next level from celebrity, you know, he's beyond the celebrity. So that was a, um, but he's, a, I remember going over there one time over to Sony and bringing with me John Dornboss. And, uh, uh, I went over to, uh, Happy Madison, which was their production company on the Sony lot. And John Dornboss, who was the long snapper for the Eagles and was a magician and fascinating guy, wanted to meet Adam Sandler. And so I took him up there and to Adam's office and he, he met Adam and it was so neat for him. And he said, you know, Adam, uh, who's your favorite NFL player? And Sandler said, well, you know what? I was on the sidelines for a game and a guy went to me. One of the players sort of did that to me. He said, instantly that became my favorite player. <laughs> he said, he was cool to me. So that's funny because you, and it's old axiom that actors want to be athletes and athletes want to be actors. And so he was just so thrilled that somebody would recognize him. <laughs> Tells you a lot about him though, you know? So anyway, that was a, 
that was a fun uh, the, the longest yard thing has been fun. I was uh, did a couple more, um, a draft day with Kevin Costner. And oh, I remember that. If you blink, you'll miss me. And um, also uh, Invincible with uh, Mark Wahlberg, the the Disney mm-hmm. Philadelphia Eagles um, Vince Papali story was a reporter in that. So I'm I'm very much typecast as a reporter. <laughs> And I was I was snubbed three times by the Academy. <laughs> Best supporting actor, for hey, my, you know, for my wooden performances. <laughs> well, the Familia FFB podcast will grant you, you know, the best best supporting lifetime yeah. lifetime thank achievement. <laughs> lifetime yeah, achievement. Thank you. Exactly. I'm the Susan. I'm the Susan Lucci of guys who act as as reporters in the background. <laughs> You talked about that kid, that junior in Occidental College, suited up, oil and everything, and 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 it, uh, you know, and and it was a don't call us, we'll call you. It it, that kid kept going, but if you could go back now, if you could go back as you now and tell, whisper in that kid's ear, uh, what would it be? I would tell myself, here's where you are, here's where your dream is. It's not as far apart as you think. These people who are living the life you want to live or doing the thing you want to do, they're not special. They weren't tapped on the head by a magic wand. This stuff is achievable. You've got to be persistent, focus on the task at hand. That's the biggest sort of life lesson is for years, I thought about what's my next job? How can I move up? How do I make my move? And I realized after a while that doesn't get it done. You got to do the best job you can and people will notice you. Uh, Focus on what you're doing right now. Don't look to constantly be sending out your resumes or or there's a fine line. You've got to be aggressive to a degree, but do the best job you can do at what you're doing. That's a step along the way. Say you're, I'm a single college kid and and I, you know, wanted to meet a girl, girl, and I was whatever. I'd get my hair cut. I'd get a new shirt. I do all those things and you're, and you go to the party and you're, you strike out. The times you meet somebody is when you're enjoying your life, you're playing basketball, you haven't showered, you didn't want to go do this thing. You meet the love of your life when you, when you least expect it because you're living your life, you're enjoying, you're living as the sort of cliche, living your best life. So I know I'm not really making a ton of sense here, but I just think that people are so focused on the next bigger, better thing that they forget to do the best job you can at what you're doing and you will, uh, you will get noticed and, and you'll be able to achieve those things. So that's a lot to whisper in the ear of a college junior, but I would just say, don't give up because it's, your dream is not that far away. 
And so, um, yeah. Anyway, that's it. Oh my God. We could have gone much further, but uh, we'll save this for another conversation. Cause because one thing we know, one thing we learned about this year, the NFL never stops. So <laughs> there's never nothing stopped. Stop. Absolutely not. <laughs> that Absolutely was, not. And that's only uh, becoming more sort of perpetual, but I just love seeing you and oh. uh, you're such a good friend. You know, I, I, I feel like we have a connection that was formed many, many years ago, decades ago. And, uh, um, you still look great. Oh, thank you. You, you, you and, come on, uh, and, uh, I, <laughs> I <laughs> well, don't lie again. <laughs> I, I can't, let me tell you something. I can't wait for this whole pandemic to be over so that you and I can high five again. So <laughs> sure. absolutely over dinner. Yes, yeah. please. Dinner, yeah. beers, uh, maybe even a shot of tequila. So yeah. oh my and, god. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Uh, so I I uh I know you're Jorge, but you're always Georgie to me. <laughs> and I wouldn't have it any other way, my friend. We went All amigo, right. but I would not have it any other way, honestly. This was such a pleasure, Sam. Such yeah, a pleasure. Um, That's such and, a great time. Thank oh, you. Just, just such right. a great time. Bueno, that was a lot of fun with our Buen Amigo Sam Farmer. Uh, that's it for our show. Uh, make sure to look for Sam at LA Times Farmer on Twitter, as well as at the LA Times. He's going to have some special coverage for the Super Bowl all week and having some great stories. You can find me at Jorge Martin 17 as well as our at Familia FFB Twitter handle. You can make sure to check out our original content at FamiliaFFB.com, as well as our Familia FFB Facebook page again thanks to anchor for being our hosting network for our independent podcast and hope you enjoyed the show everybody because this was a lot of fun and remember everybody todos somos familia